right. Let's just pray. Lord, let my words this morning be your words. Let the ears that hear, hear your voice. Let um, all that we hear be blessed by you. And then let us be a blessing to others as we go into the world. And we say in your precious name. Amen. Today we're going to continue with Esther. So if you have your Bibles or your phone or whichever device you use, turn to Esther and we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 19 through to the end of chapter 3. And I'm not going to read the whole thing out, I'll read it out bit by bit as we go. Now for those who haven't been here for the past couple of weeks, we have journeyed through the book of Esther thus far. What we've seen is an immature, proud, selfish, arrogant, petty, much more words than we can have, king. He banishes his wife, and then he gathers up all of the young women in the realm to find a replacement. Lucy called it the bachelor, Persian style. The end result, of course, as we know now, is that a Jewish girl named Esther, became the queen. Well, you think that it could be the end of the story and the king would be content. But wait, he's not. Esther 2.19 and 20 says, Even after all the young women had been transferred to a second harem and Mordecai had become a palace official, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She was still following Mordecai's direction just as she did when she lived at his home. So at the beginning it says that there was a second gathering. Interestingly, he's got a queen, but he's at it again. A second gathering, according to my version. The women were transferred to the second harem. If you ask historians, they will tell us that occasionally this sort of thing happened to replace the older members of the harem with some younger, better models. Or, another one said, possibly the king wanted to get a procession of all these young girls to show how beautiful Esther was when they compared her to the others. But it doesn't, it's not really clear. So it's a bit of a guesswork about it because they had to look at the history about it. So we carry on. And we see that Mordecai became a palace official. And later on we see he was sitting at the palace gate. The reason we think that was quite an important position is because that's where most of the official business took place, at the king's gate. They settled legal matters, and you know what? Later on, we hear that this is where he heard the plot. But we'll get to that. 
You notice that Esther continued to keep her background, her family background and her nationality a secret. Well, normally, there's never a good reason to hide the fact that we belong to God, that we're Christians. But, you know, I could put a guilt trip on you now. Just imagine if you're in a restaurant and you're going to say grace, which I should assume you may. Do you do it quietly or do it loudly and boldly like Ron? You do that in case other people hear you. You do it quietly. If someone asks you what was what are your plans for this Sunday going to be, do you mention church? Or do you say, oh, I might go for a bike ride later? Think about it. I'm saying these things because I know I've been guilty of it. I know you don't believe me, but it's a shock. I'm not perfect. Has been referred to as acting as a secret agent, concealing who we are and being so unrecognisable as a believer out there that nobody knows. Because I want to say that faith must be public. We want others to know the God who loves us so that they may come to love him as well. If we conceal our relationship with him, how can others see him in us and then want to know him? We know God is with us because Joshua 1.19 says, This is my command, be strong, be courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. For those who conceal their relationship with God, it's, not, it's because they don't want to suffer publicly or be mocked or be opposed or be disliked. What is being worshipped there is a thing called comfort. Being comfortable where we are. Not feeling out of place. We must take to, warn, to heart the warning that Jesus gave in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. It says, everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Strong words. Jesus is our Lord and Saviour. What Jesus says is truth. So if we live a life of denying him and then turn around and expect him to recognise us, how does that work? Now, there may be a time, of course, where you need to be a little bit discreet that you're a Christian. But not to conceal it outright. But wait for the right opportune moment. It might be a time where he wants us to get alongside a neighbour, a friend, a person, a workmate. Develop a friendship with them. But still displaying his love outwardly. Without coming out and 
picking up your Bible and hitting them across the head and saying, Be saved, brother! This may have been part of what Mordecai sensed and then got Esther not to reveal who she was. I don't know. I'm guessing. My thoughts may not be yours. Because the verse says she was still following Mordecai's direction, just as she did when she lived in his home. She did not reveal who she was. Mordecai had brought her up in his home. He had taught her, and she was obeying him. I remind you of Proverbs 22, verse 6, which says, Direct your children onto the right path, and when they are older, they will not leave it. We will see amazing results in the life of Esther and for all of the Israelites in Persia as we go through this story further. But that's later. So you've got to keep coming back for the serial. And if you remember when you were younger, some of you, some of you will not even know about it, we used to go to the movies and there were serials, so each week you had to come back to get the next episode. And boy, if you missed one, you lost that thread. That's a good ploy. So we move on in Esther. Verse 21 to 23 says, One day, as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for it. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. This was all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. Here we have Mordecai sitting at the gate, doing his official business, he overhears two of the king's eunuchs. They are angry about something. Unfortunately, we don't know what they're angry about. It'd be nice to know, but we don't. But as a result of that, they plan to assassinate the king. My understanding of these two eunuchs, if you look at another, in scripture, they mentioned one other time, and they were the doorkeepers of the king's bedchamber. And they, their job was to stand or sit in front of there so no one could enter. So they were in a good position to do something in relation to killing the king. So Mordecai told Esther, Esther told the king. Now, God who is never mentioned in the story but is there all the time is going to use this at a later date. But I want you to bring this to yourself and think, okay, have I ever done anything that, although maybe very little, insignificant, but I did it because I got that prompting, and then it became a life changer for somebody. It became important in somebody's life. 
Because we never know when we're going to do something that's of significance. That smile we've given to somebody, that hello we've given to somebody, that helping hand we've given to somebody. God uses it and multiplies it many, many times. In this case, that small act of Mordecai's just mentioning to Esther, who mentioned on to the king, has a profound effect later. And we'll see that as the story progresses. Well, the story tells us, the verse tells us that the plot was investigated, found to be true, and those two men got impaled. Not a nice thing. I won't go into that. If you want to know about it, look it up. It's not nice. But let's just say that the Persian Empire liked doing this. Darius, who was Xerxes' father, was one, at one time known to have impaled 3,000 men because he could. And you know, all of this event was recorded in the book of the history of the king of Xerxes' reign. And the reason this is included is Xerxes knew exactly who was trying to kill him and he knew exactly who saved his life. It was recorded because the scribes would have brought the entire report to King Xerxes, written down the records in his presence in what they called the Chronicles, which was the official records of the day, and he would have been, it would have been read to him, so he was familiar with it, agreed with it, and said, yes, that is correct, that is part of my history. But what does he do? Nothing about it. No reward for Mordecai. The injustice of it all. You'd think at least he'd get a thank you. Mordecai got no thanks, no reward. In fact, it appears as if he was forgotten. And you know that in history tells us that in that time that was a, a tremendous affront. It was against their culture and practice not to reward people. A great and serious cultural omission. Bring it forward to today. Have you ever been in a situation where you do everything right, you don't receive any recognition, you don't read, uh, receive any reward for it, whereas others who do exactly the same thing do? Where's the justice in that for you? It can be very difficult to deal with. In fact, I can imagine being rather miffed. But what Esther 2, 19 23 is showing us that when someone does good, they do not always get rewarded immediately. Even though that happens, God never forgets. Our hope is anchored in the proven, the unchanging, the perfect and absolute nature of our God. Because Hebrews 6.10 tells us, For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. So none of our actions or God or others are forgotten. And when we do it, we do it for him, we do it for others and not the reward. So we're going to journey on. There's a lot in this, and we could spend a long time in each of these little passages, but we're going to journey on. 
Esther 3. Verses 1 to 3. Some time later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. I wonder why. Earlier in Esther, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, we learnt that Mordecai was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. Haman is an Agite. He was a descendant of Agar, who was a king of the, all these words I tell you, <laughs> Amalekites during the time of Saul. And the Old Testament always stresses the bitter and unrelenting hatred between these two people. The Amalekites were a wicked and evil people and the descendants of the Amalekites were always at war with the Israelites. One of the famous battles, which you might remember, is found in Exodus 17, where you remember that the Israelites only won if Moses kept his staff up. And every time it went down, they began to lose the battle. And there's more as you go through Judges until finally in 1 Samuel 15, God instructs King Saul to go and attack, the, um, attack them and put them all to death, including all the animals. King Saul does not obey, if you remember the story. Instead, he takes the best animals for himself and he allows King Agar to live. Then the prophet Samuel comes along, confronts Saul with his sin. Samuel goes then and kills King Agag himself. Some of his children must have escaped because 600 years later, here's Haman, and he's an Agite. He would remember what happened to his ancestors at the hands of the Israelites would have been passed down from generation to generation. So that's where Haman comes from. So you're in the context of this nice man. We don't know why the king doesn't just promote Haman to any sort of level. He promotes him to over all other nobles. He's the number one guy next to the king. So I think Mordecai does not bow to Haman out of ethnic pride. You may have another idea. He will not bow. Carry on. Esther 3, 3 to 4. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct, since Mordecai had also told them he was a Jew. Everybody else obeyed. Mordecai didn't. So they questioned him. They said, why are you disobeying the king's command? In other words, hey, why don't you just come go along with the crowd? Come on, 
Do it like us. You're making us look bad. Come on. Just conform to what's going on. Conform. Follow the crowd. That's what they're asking. But if you follow God, you've got to be prepared to stand out as being different. And you have to live with the consequences of being different. Romans 1, 16 17 says, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from the start to the finish by faith. As scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. If we're not ashamed of the gospel, we stand up and we make sure that we are different because we are. So Mordecai's colleague spoke to him day after day and still he refused to obey. Remember he had disclosed to them that he was a Jew. Mordecai wanted Esther to hide that fact, but he didn't hide the fact he was a Jew. And they told Haman that he was a Jew. I don't know whether Haman knew before that. Because in Esther, Esther 3, 5 and 6, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. In reading that, I had a thought, maybe Haman didn't notice Mordecai to start with that he was being disobedient. And it wasn't until the other officials pointed it out and he thought, oh yeah, he isn't bowing down. And because of that, he's got, a, got rather miffed. He got angry. He would have thought, I'm important. I'm a success. Why shouldn't he? And so Haman's anger led him to take his wrath out on all Jews, not just Mordecai. Because here he is showing his hatred for the Jews because of what they did to his ancestors. So Haman's got a solution. It's called genocide. One man won't bow to me, so I'll wipe out his whole race. Hmm. So maybe if Mordecai had just bowed down, the story would have finished right here and then. There would be no more story. But it didn't. Come back next week and see the next excerpt. So, Esther 3.7, so it says, In the month of April, during the twelfth year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence. The lots were called Purim, to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day selected was March 7th, nearly a year later. It was their custom to cast lots to see, to make decisions about things. So they wanted to know what day, what month would be most lucky for the most effective extermination of all the Jews. 
Purim, or Pur, as it's sometimes called, is a Persian word for lot. And it's similar to a dice, and, but it's used to determine things by chance. So they rolled the dice and we estimate sometime in April, because it says April, good estimate. The dice determined that the massacre was going to happen in March of the following year. So nine months, 11 months away. You know, even the rolling of the dice at that time, nothing was going to happen unless God allowed it to happen. He was the one ruling, even though sometimes we call things by chance or coincidence. That doesn't happen. He rules. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The Lord is in control of everything, not chance, not coincidence. Let's continue. Esther 3, 8 to 15, then, sorry, 8 to 11. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There is a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it pleases the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. Ooh, money for the king. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger giving it to Haman, the son of Hamabadatha, or have you said, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. Wow, lucky guy, Haman. Look at that, he's got the king's favour, he's got all this money the king's going to let him keep, he's going to get all of that from the Jews after he's killed them and got taken all of their property. But that's later in the story. Yeah, you know, you've got to think about King Xerxes, you know. He hasn't grown up. He still believes what he's told. Questioning is good, but blindly believing what we're told without checking it out could lead to issues, and it will. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 reminds us, test everything that is said and hold on to what is good. I'm not going to get you to put your hand up, but do you believe in conspiracy theories? Do you accept what they say without trying to validate them? There's a lot around. There's ones about the moon landing. There's ones about the assassinations of prominent people. There's ones going around about vaccinations. But we're not going to go into those because that is not what we hear about. Because Proverbs 18.17 says, Everyone seems right until the other side is heard. There's two sides to every story. And Haman had run to Xerxes, and Xerxes did it again, just acted rashly. He didn't get both sides of the story, 
He didn't investigate the facts. He just says, that's a great plan. Go for it. Because he assumed that Haman had the best interests of the kingdom in mind. The injustice of it all. See how easy it is to influence and affect somebody else. How many times do we act before we check? As believers, we should be different and we should not be guilty of acting before we know all the facts and then find we put our foot in our mouths. Sometimes it's easy to get partial information, misinformation, and then we make decisions based on that. We don't do our homework, we don't research, we don't investigate. Proverbs 18.13 says, Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. Who do we let influence us? Xerxes let Haman influence him. Do we let politicians, leaders, celebrities, friends, and the list goes on, influence us to the point that we trust them so much that we don't even check what they're telling us? That's our king, King Xerxes. He was told there's a certain race of people scattered throughout all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. They are different. They stand out. We are Christians. We are different. We stand out. Got it? Yeah. So what voices we allow to influence us affect our lives most importantly. Who we go to for advice influences what we do. So, on April the 17th, the king's secretaries were summoned and a decree was written exactly as Haman dictated. It was sent to the king's highest officers, the governors of the respective provinces and the nobles of each province in their own scripts and languages. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and signed with the king's signet ring. Dispatches were sent by swift messengers to all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March the 7th of the next year and the property of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all people so that they would be ready to do their duty on the appointed day. At the king's command, the decree went out by swift messenger and it was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa, where King Xerxes lived. Wow. Imagine being a Jew and hearing this. What would you do? Imagine, would you want to run? Would you want to hide? Where do you go? King Xerxes was the most powerful king of the time and his realm spread forever. Huge provinces, huge areas. So you may have thought, there is nowhere to go. What are we going to do? Because it was an unchangeable decree from the king. Once it was issued and his signet ring 
was affixed, that was it. There was no going back. You could not change an official decree. Things look grim. Things aren't looking good. Woe for the people of the Israelites. Oh, no justice in that for them, is there? We don't hear God speaking. We don't hear acting. The injustice just keeps going and going and going. We see that in Esther 3.15, later in the passage, it says, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. The citizens heard this decree. They were confused. They thought, hey, these are our neighbours. These are our friends. These are our co-workers. What are we going to do? This edict has, and I'm sure it happened in other parts of the nation too, thinking, what are we going to do? These are our friends. These are the people we like. These are the people we get on with. What are we going to do? We'll wait and see. The story continues. Because then King and Haman sat down to drink, as you do when you've made such a monumental decision that affects a whole race of people. Because the king is quite confident he's taken a wise step. He's happy because he's acting in his own interest. He's grateful to Haman for pointing out this obvious thing he didn't see. So he invites him in to celebrate with a glass of wine or two. Wow, Haman, number two in the, in the whole kingdom, there, having a drink. Job well done. So... The question that hangs at the end of this is, what hope is there? What hope is there for the people, the Jewish people? What can they do against such great power? Woe is me, poor people. We have the advantage, of course, you can flick through, but um, if you don't want to know what happens and you want to come along the next few days, the next few Sundays to see, don't read on yet. Throughout the story, spoiler alert, we see God's work through imperfect people and his ability to use them to accomplish his will, even though when he seems silent, even though when we don't see him mentioned, he is still working. He is still working through the book of Esther. Because God is the ultimate hero in Esther. He is present throughout this story. He is present through your story. If at times he doesn't seem to be listening, if at times he seems silent, he is still there. He is still working for you. He is on the throne. He is truly king. He is reigning. That is true. There is nothing else but our God. Now all glory to God who is able to make you strong, just as my good news says. This message about Jesus Christ has been revealed in his plan for you Gentiles, a plan kept secret from the beginning of time, but now as the prophets foretold and as the eternal God has commanded, this message is made known to all Gentiles everywhere so that they too might believe and obey him. All glory to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, forever. Amen. That's our God.
Our God is great. Our God is working. Our God is there, even when we can't see it. When things are going to custard around us, he is working. When things don't go according to our plan, he is working. When other people's decisions affect us, he is working. Be assured of that. What seems unjust to you at the time, in hindsight, will see his work. We will see his hand in it. We will praise him for what he has done. Praise him now for what he is doing in your lives. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are a blessing. Lord, we thank you that we have you in our lives. To us, there is no other. Lord, oh, just promote, be greater as we become lesser. And Lord, as we humble ourselves before you, have your way in us, work mightily in us, make us instruments for you on this earth so that we can be effective for you. Lord, let it not be about us, but be about you. Let it not be about us, but let it be about others because the reward is great. Thank you, Lord. Your blessing is great. Your love is great. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Mm.